0: Hi, I'm Archie Curry. And I'm Dee Curry. And you're listening to Word of Hope Christian Church in New Brunswick, Texas. Hi, everyone, and welcome. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. It's Sunday, October 21st, and this is your Sunday Sermon. Well, we have finally reached the end of our journey in our sermon series, Lessons from Nehemiah. Today, we're going to be looking at the last chapter of Nehemiah, Nehemiah 13, verses 1 to 31. And we're going to talk about keeping our promises. But before we do, join me in an opening word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we worship you, we adore you, we love you, and we are grateful for your word. Lord, teach us in the closing chapter of this incredible series what we need to know today about keeping our promises. Definitely an important subject, Lord, and we are grateful for your promises that we can stand on. And we thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. I recently read about a fellow who really liked Snickers candy bars. For more than a year, whenever he would go to his local Dairy Queen, he always ordered a Snicker Blizzard. Then he would go so often that when he would walk in the door, quite literally one of the workers would start filling a cup with chunks of tasty nougat. It was an automatic thing for him. Until the day he tasted his six-year-old daughter's mint Oreo Blizzard, it was all over after that. When his daughter had her tonsils out, he told her she could have whatever she wanted at Dairy Queen. She didn't feel like eating anything for about a week or so, but when she was better, she remembered that promise. One day, the fellow stopped and got her a blizzard. He tried every trick in the book he could think of to get as many spoonfuls as he could. His daughter finally made him promise not to eat any more. When they got home, the little girl put what was left of her blizzard in the freezer to save for until the time she felt better. A few hours later, his dad remembered that it was in there, so he grabbed a spoon and he finished it. He said he didn't think that she wanted it because she felt so sick. When she opened up the freezer, she saw that it was gone and said, Dad, you promised. To make it up to her, they went out a few days later and split a large mint Oreo blizzard. He was on his best behavior, but his daughter kept her eye on him to make sure he didn't hog it. A few days later, the mom brought her daughter another blizzard. The little girl once again put it what was left in the freezer, but this time dad didn't touch it. A couple of minutes later, his daughter said that he could finish her tasty treat. He thanked her, opened the freezer, and pulled out an empty cup. She just laughed so hard that she fell on the floor. The next week, the family went to Dairy Queen, and the little girl once again ordered her favorite blizzard. The dad ordered one as well, but he could tell his daughter didn't trust him. He noticed that she even sat as far away from him as she could. The dad tried to exchange cups with her when his was empty, but she was on to him. She gave him one of her great smiles and said, Dad? You promised. You know, at some point, we all fail to keep our promises, don't we? Our good intentions and plans often fall by the wayside. Sometimes we blatantly break our promises, but there are other times we just kind of drift away a little bit at a time. Someone has said that moral failure and spiritual decline are much like a flat tire. Most flat tires don't occur as a result of a blowout. They get flat because air leaks out over time, often imperceptibly. I'm told that generally speaking, a tire will lose one or two pounds of air per month in cool weather, and even more in warmer weather. Sometimes you don't even know the tire's going flat until that low tire light comes on your dashboard, or until the car becomes a little difficult to drive. In our passage for today, Nehemiah 13, we come face to face with some backsliders. The dictionary defines the verb backslide this way, to relapse into bad habits, sinful behavior, or undesirable activities. You would think that the last chapter of this great book would contain encouraging and compelling stories of how God's people took their spiritual commitment to the next level. Frankly, this script does not have a happy ending at all. Within a relatively short period of time, the children of Israel went spiritually flat and returned to their old ways of doing things which violated God's laws and allowed the world's system to press them into its mold. That leads to one of the greatest lessons of the book of Nehemiah, and it's this good beginnings are no guarantee of happy endings. Before we jump into chapter 13, I want to give you some background information. First, in chapter 1, we learned that Nehemiah had a great job in the Persian White House. Sensing God's clear leading, Nehemiah requested and received permission to lead a team of builders to reconstruct the walls surrounding Jerusalem. Nehemiah was appointed governor and served for 12 years in that position. He dealt with the enemies, organized the people, rebuilt the wall, set up the infrastructure for the repopulated city, and led a great celebration of dedication. Then at the end of chapter 12, Nehemiah went back to Persia and his role as a senior advisor to the king of Persia. We don't know how long he stayed, but it was probably several years. When he finally retired from his government job in Susa, he returned to Jerusalem because he wanted to enjoy his retirement years and eventually be buried in the city of his fathers. Chapter 13 records what Nehemiah discovered when he returned to Jerusalem. I can't imagine what he must have felt. When he left, chapter 12, verse 43 says that the sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. Nehemiah came back really strong because these same people had violated the covenant that they had publicly signed in chapter 9, verse 38. So Nehemiah attempted to jar Team Jerusalem out of their comfortable compromise in the world. Second, there's a literary link between chapters 10 and 13. In chapter 10, the people made four vows or promises, you might recall. First, they pledged to submit to God's word. Second, they vowed to live separate from the world. Third, they promised to keep the Sabbath. And fourth, they agreed to support God's work. Sadly, by the time we get to chapter 13, each of these promises are broken. This reminds us of the most spiritual person, and the best church can find its standards subtly eroding as we gradually accommodate the pressures of contemporary worldliness. At the dedication in chapter 12, the builders celebrated their moral victory in a battle against secularism and materialism, but they had certainly not won the war. Since chapter 13 is best understood in light of chapter 10, I'm going to follow the same outline from two weeks ago that we had when we carefully looked at each of those promises today we're going to find and talk about what happened and why we now have four broken promises first let's look at the submission promise the promises of chapter 10 began with an affirmation of loyalty to the word of god in verse 29 to obey carefully all the commands regulations and decrees of the lord our god in nehemiah 13 1, We read a description of Israel's carelessness about what God had said in the book of Moses concerning the purity of their worship. It says, On that day the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly. We see again that scripture was read publicly. Those present realized how sloppy they had been about their exclusive loyalty to God, As they listened to the words of Moses, they remembered what had happened to their ancestors when they were on the threshold of the promised land. The Ammonites' sin was one of omission. They had not met the Israelites with food and water. The Moabites' sin was one of commission. They had hired Balaam to call a curse down on the Israelites. We don't have time today to go into the detail about that, but I encourage you to read Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 through 5 to get a better understanding of what was happening. The bottom line is that the Moabites and Ammonites were notorious for infiltrating Israel and causing their worship to become diluted. Here's the good news. When the Israelites heard what God's word had to say, they obeyed it. Check out verse three. It says, when all the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. That's a great application for us. Let's admit when we fall short that we break our promises and that we even mess up. We don't always follow what we know to be true. It seems to me we have two choices. We can continue this pattern of disobedience or we can stop what we've been doing and determine to live out what God says. The Christian life is a series of new beginnings. It's never too late to start taking God's word seriously. Is there something you need to do that you've been putting off? Is there a decision you need to make today? I suspect that some of you have no question about what God wants you to do, but you're afraid to do it because it's difficult. Friend, if God is asking you to do something, He will take care of all the details. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. While the people broke their promise to submit to God's word, they determined once again to do what God said. The next promise they broke was the separation promise. This promise called for the people to live separate from the world. They ignored this vow in two ways. First, they allowed an enemy intruder. In verses four through nine, we see that one of their enemies was actually living in the Jewish temple. Can you believe it? Nehemiah was horrified to find that Eliashib, the high priest of Israel, had prepared a guest room for Tobiah, an Ammonite in the temple. This is the same Tobiah that we talked about in earlier chapters, who was ridiculing what Nehemiah was doing. Unbelievably, an arch enemy of God's people had actually set up residence in the nerve center of Jerusalem. From this position, he could influence everybody. This is one of the first consequences of the breaking of the vow to not intermarry with pagans. Eliashib had become a traitor because one of his relatives was married to Sanballat's daughter, chapter 13, verse 28, and Sanballat and Tobiah were friends. Throughout the book of Nehemiah, Tobiah has been an enemy of God and a thorn in Nehemiah's side. Nehemiah dealt with him many times before and made sure that he was never allowed inside the walls. While Nehemiah was away, The high priest not only allowed Tobiah inside the city, he gave him the keys to a large suite of rooms where the tithes and offerings of the people were stored. Eliashib had been entrusted with a privileged responsibility, but by cultivating wrong relationships, he misused his office and frustrated God's work. Nehemiah saw Eliashib's act for what it was, an offense against a holy God, a public denial of the priority of spiritual things, and an act of blatant disobedience to scripture. In verse seven, Nehemiah called it an evil deed. The identification of the problem demanded drastic public and immediate action. Take a look at verses eight through nine. Nehemiah says, I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms and then I got back into them, the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. Nehemiah just went off on Tobiah. He showed him the door, threw out his furniture, TV, computer, stereo, all of that into the street. Then he gave an order to have the rooms clean. In fact, he wanted every trace of Tobias' presence removed from the temple. He had the room disinfected and fumigated so that not even the smell of that man's cologne was there after he left. Nehemiah could not live with wrong in a place that was built for right. The first separation vow they broke was that they allowed a pagan unbeliever to take up residence in their temple. The second separation promise they broke was that they allowed mixed marriages to take place. You'll recall this vow in chapter 10, verse 30. We promised not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. Drop into chapter 13, verses 23 and 24. When Nehemiah returned, he saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. So this meant that they would not know how to read the law of God or even participate in temple services. Their sins were damaging their homes and family life. Only a few years earlier, as God's people were repairing the walls, chapter 4, verses 7 and 8 tells us that the Ammonites and the men of Ashdod had plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem. Yesterday's enemies had become today's marriage partners. In challenging them about their disobedience, Nehemiah uses arguments from experience in verses 23 and 24 and from history in verse 26. This really lit Nehemiah up and he went off on the people. Check out verse 25. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name. So by calling down curses on them, he was pronouncing God's judgment on their actions. He was so mad and his anger was so intense that he smacked some of the husbands and yanked out their hair. When Ezra was faced with a similar situation in Ezra 9-3, he plucked out his own hair. Instead of doing that, Nehemiah pulled the hair of some of the offenders. This may seem like violent and inappropriate behavior for a man of God, but when we interpret Nehemiah's actions against the backdrop of Israel's history— It's easier to understand his intense feelings. This very sin of living separate from the world was the primary reason they were taken into Babylonian captivity in the first place. Nehemiah knew that pagan women led their wisest king into sin, and Nehemiah himself had personally experienced the results of Solomon's sin. That's why his grandparents had been carried off to Babylon. That's why he was a servant to King Artaxerxes. There was no way that Nehemiah wanted God's judgment to fall on Israel again. If God did not tolerate it in Solomon's life, he would certainly not allow it now. The third promise they neglected was the support promise. The people neglected to support God's work in verse 13. Their final statement in chapter 10 was that they would not neglect the house of our God. When we come to this final chapter, Nehemiah discovers that the ministry of the temple was hampered in verse 10 because the Levites and singers had to get jobs in the fields in order to survive. The temple storerooms were empty because people had stopped bringing their tithes and offerings. By the way, this probably explains why the rooms were available for Tobiah to live in. Nehemiah has to do some tough talking again in verse 11 where he says, So I rebuke the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Nehemiah then set up a system so that they could once again put God first with their finances. Nehemiah not only rebuked them, he showed them what to do to make some changes. That's exactly what God does for each one of us. He wants the bad removed and the good immediately restored. When the Holy Spirit convicts us, he also prods us to positive behavior. We are to stop doing something destructive and begin doing something constructive. Nehemiah set up administrative systems to ensure that tithes would once again start coming into the temple. The temple officers in charge of the gifts had left their posts because there was nothing coming in or out. So the last part of verse 11, Nehemiah called them together and stationed them at their posts. In verse 12, we read that the people brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil into the storerooms. They renewed their commitment to God and put him first in their finances and brought to God what was rightfully his. Then in verse 13, Nehemiah appointed four men to supervise the treasury and distribute the tithes and offerings. Interestingly enough, these men represented the priests, levites scribes and laymen they were all different but they had one thing in common the verse said these were men who were considered trustworthy when god's people start to go flat spiritually one of the first places it shows up is in their giving jesus put it this way in matthew 6:21 wherever your treasure is there the desires of your heart will also be just as the israelites renewed their commitment to honor god with their wallets so too you and i need to do an honest assessment of our giving Are you putting God first in your finances, beloved? The fourth promise the people broke was this, the Sabbath promise. When the people signed the covenant, the Israelites promised not to do business with the Gentiles on the Sabbath day. Chapter 10, verse 31 said, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath. In chapter 13, verses 15 to 22, Nehemiah discovered that the people were not only doing business on the Sabbath, they were treating it like any other day of the week. They had broken their fourth promise by secularizing the Sabbath. Verse 16 tells us men in Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. And the sad thing is that the leaders allowed this to happen. They allowed these shops to operate seven days a week. Nehemiah didn't sit back and let this promise be ignored either. He spoke sternly and he acted firmly by instituting three action steps. First, in verse 15, he warned them against selling food, and he made them stop. Second, he rebuked the nobles for allowing business on the Sabbath day by reminding them that the violation of the Sabbath was one of the reasons for their captivity in the first place. We see this in verse 18. Didn't your forefathers do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity upon us and upon this city? Now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. His third step was very practical. Look at verse 19. It says he ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. And then he stationed some of his own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. In verse 21, Nehemiah warned them, those who wanted to sell their goods on the Sabbath, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. What he's talking about is he would have them arrested. Then in verse 22, he commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. In doing this, the Levites would be setting a good example and were able to minister to the people. In demanding that the people keep their Sabbath promise, Nehemiah was emphasizing the centrality of worship, the importance of witness, the necessity of rest, and the priority of love. Loving obedience is always better than a full wallet. This command was not intended to be a chore. God never demands anything from us that is not for our own good. When Nehemiah's people ignored the Sabbath, they were damaging the very fabric of their spiritual, physical, and social lives. As we wrap up this chapter and our series in Nehemiah, I want to give you my top 10 lessons from this very practical book. Are you ready? Here we go. Number one, it's never too late to do what's right. Even though God's people had messed up pretty bad, It did not disqualify them from service or ruin their relationship with God. Don't let your past keep you from doing what's right. It really doesn't matter what you've done. What matters is that you begin right now to renew your walk with God. Number two, don't play around with sin. Nehemiah dealt with sin decisively and abruptly. Most of us underestimate our sinfulness and overestimate our goodness. Friend, don't flirt with sin. Don't get cozy with compromise. Be vigilant, as Romans 12, 9 says, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Number three, remember who God is. He is great and awesome. That means he is large and in charge. He is also good all the time, and all the time, he is good. Even when bad things happen to us, he is good. He is gracious. He doesn't treat us as we deserve, but always grants us grace and fresh starts. Number four, Cultivate a lifestyle of praise and prayer. God desires for each of us to worship him with reverence and with joy, both individually and corporately. As we do, we'll also cry out to him in confession and supplication. When we pray, we should pray doctrinally and also be ready to send up those quick prayers throughout the day. Number five, move out of your comfort zone. Most of us are way too comfortable with the way we're living. We tend to default to what is predictable and easy. God wants us to be available to him, and when he asks us to do something that stretches us, let's be ready to move. Number six, don't let difficulties derail you. When hard times come, and they will, don't bail on God. God allows tough times in our lives for a purpose. Use them to get closer to him and ask him to develop your character through the process. Number seven, seek to resolve relational ruptures. As we spend time with people, we are bound to have conflict and disagreements. Each of us sin against others, and others sin against us. Don't allow this conflict to go underground. Meet face to face and seek resolution. Number eight, say yes to God's priorities and no to the devil's distractions. God wants us to live purposeful lives, focused on those things that matter to him. The evil one seeks to get us off track through busyness and selfishness. Commit yourself to God's priorities, specifically as it relates to your time, your talent, and your treasure. Number nine, believe the promises of God and act on them. While it can be helpful to make promises or vows to God, it's more important to believe the promises of God and act accordingly. We don't have to perform for God. Instead, claim what God has promised to do for you and ask him to give you the tenacity to take him at his word. Finally, allow God to use you. God takes great pleasure in using people who are available to him. You don't have to be a super saint or a spiritual giant. God delights in using ordinary people like us so that his extraordinary power can be unleashed in our lives. God uses people that will give him their all. Nehemiah prays three short prayers for himself in chapter 13. They are starting with verse 14 remember me for this, O God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. Verse 22, remember me for this also, O my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. And then finally in verse 31, remember me with favor, O my God. Nehemiah reminded God of his faithfulness and prayed what he had done would not be blotted out, Nehemiah wasn't pleading for blessings on the basis of personal merit, because he knew that God's favor only comes from his grace and mercy. He simply was asking God to remember him and what he had done. He wanted God's favor and reward, not the praises of man. These prayers reveal an attitude toward life. Nehemiah could have built a monument to himself. He could have written the inscription on the wall, built by Nehemiah the Great. He could have looked back at his life and been proud of his accomplishments, or He could have been frustrated because the believers had broken their promises. In other words, he could have been impressed with his past accomplishments or discouraged about the present situation. But he chooses neither of those things. He simply said, Lord, a day is coming when all of this is going to be over. I want the meaning of my life to be anchored in the future. He knew that there was a time coming when he'd be rewarded by the Lord and embraced by him. His prayers reveal that he's living for that day when the Lord will say to him, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's celebrate together. Beloved, are you living for that day? Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God real hook.